Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Christian, what comes to mind when I mention feral children? Well, I read a book when I was, uh, it's a young adult book called My Side of the Mountain. Have you ever read that book? I have. It was one of my favorite books when I was a kid, and it was about uh, a kid who was 12 years old, I think, and, mm-hmm. and he just decided, he, he lived in New York City, and he decided he hated the city. So he uh, went to uh, the forest upstate where his, his grandparents had property and proceeded to live in a tree, and his best friends were a hawk named Fearful and a weasel named the Baron. Hmm. And I thought that was just the best thing ever. So I thought Pharaoh Kid <laughs> when I when I read that. Sounded like a good deal. Yeah, it's uh it turns out not so much. Yeah, I had a similar experience with this topic because because early on, of course, you know, you're exposed to the jungle book, you know, mm-hmm. the adventures of Mowgli or or of course another um similar tale, um, where the wild things are. Where yeah. the, the little boy runs off to live this animalistic existence with monsters in a faraway land. Um, and it's an and it's a, an appealing idea that plays into like the you know the bestial nature of children and mm-hmm. the the wildness of children and also you know kind of the the purity of them. But yeah, when you actually start looking into the history and science of feral children, it's a, it's a far more depressing reality. It's one of those things that we have had with us. Uh, at least mythologically for hum- in human culture f- for probably as long as humans have been around, the idea of the feral outsider that uh, doesn't belong in civilization, right? But yeah. it, we, try to, we try to fix them we, and bring them back and train, teach them how to live right. Yeah, and it plays into just basic uh, ruminations on what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Uh, like mm-hmm. what, if you remove culture and or language from a human, then what are they? Are they truly human anymore? And and so, yeah, it's an idea that we've continued to come back to time and time again, and we'll continue to in both romantic and uh, darkly realistic manners. Yeah, certainly. I, I think um, one of the things that we discovered when we first started researching feral children for this episode was that there's distinctly two different types of feral children. Mm-hmm. There is the Wild child, which is what you and I were both thinking of, yeah. the Mowgli type. So the romantic idea, <clears throat> even, yeah. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, some, some child who at a young age gets lost or is abandoned and lives in the wild and is probably raised by animals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, this is not one that I had considered, but this is the more realistic, is uh, instances of child abuse yeah. where there are children who have been confined or... Uh, possibly abused by their parents and isolated in such a way that it has the same effect as if they they grew up in the wild. Yeah, cases of severe neglect and abuse that achieve the same ends of growing up without culture because there's just no culture, no language thrust upon them. Exactly. And those are the ones that we have definitive examples of in the last 30, 40 years. We yeah. have two that we'll talk about in these episodes. But and that's one of the reasons that I had previously uh, looked into doing this topic mm-hmm. and quickly got too depressed with it to keep going. Yeah. So this is a this time we we nailed it. I think though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I do think that it's probably worth us uh, <laughs> mentioning up top that this is dark subject matter, uh, but I think it's worth visiting and. Uh, 
one of the reasons why is because of exactly what you said, that the scientific and philosophical communities keep coming back to this idea of what divides human beings from animals. And the myth or the reality of a feral child is like it seems to be their best way of conceiving that difference, right? Yeah. Um, in some of the early, you know, sort of medieval examples that we'll talk about today, there was an idea that a feral child was humanity in a, quote, raw state. Mm. Uh, in one example, they actually categorized feral children as an entirely different species than Homo sapiens. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, the idea of the, 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 the wild child, the feral child. It just, I mean, if you're just around children, you, you see it in them. Um yeah, so as we go through this episode, we're going to talk about some of these specific cases that are generally rather depressing. We're going to, you know, so you're going to have to roll with those if you if you listen to to the episode. But, but we're, we're going to do our best to to obviously not make fun, but to keep it light and yeah. to engage in our usual interaction. Yeah, and uh, and there's going to be a lot of content just about the power of language, how we acquire language. So uh, you know, it's also not going to be just uh, an you know an hour-plus block of depressing right. abuse cases. So let's define up top, though, a feral child, okay? So, like, probably like us, many people listening out there have an idea of them as a sort of, you know, wild child type. The sort of definition that is that a feral child is one who, from an early age, has lived an extended period of isolation from human contact. This doesn't have to be in a forest. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it's they've been locked in a room and never let out, right? right. Um, typically, what we see is that they are impaired and they're lacking the cognitive abilities and the communication skills and especially the socialization that we come to expect from human beings. Uh, and they almost always have an impaired language ability and mental function. And that's why we're going to focus. We're going to later in the episode, we're going to really like hone in on language, how it develops. So some of the, the key myths, though, that uh, that most people or a lot of people are going to be familiar with mm-hmm. um, are as follows. Uh, the f- first big one, of course, is Romulus and Remus. Uh, you've probably seen statues of this, like the twin the twin infants uh, suckled by the she-wolf, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not going to blow through the whole myth here, but uh, basically you have twin brothers, uh, the sons of the god Mars and the priestess Rhea Silvia. They're banned at birth, uh, which you know is essentially a form of infanticide. You leave them out in the wilderness and let uh, nature take its course. Yeah, right? I think in the myth, there's something. It's some relative of the king's who's afraid that they're going to usurp the king or something. Yeah, like exactly. That. It's the the fear that, like, basically, it's their destiny to rule. And, right. Uh, they try to uh, to interfere with this destiny by just throwing them away in the woods. But they're suckled by a she-wolf, they're fed by a woodpecker, then they're raised by shepherds, and they eventually rise to power. They learn of their origins, overthrow their would-be killer, uh, and end up fi- uh, founding Rome. So it's a tale of destiny weaving its way through plots and circumstance, and it's in, in kind of a you know an early uh, examination of nature and nurture. Like they have... It is in their nature to rule. To be the king. Yeah, yeah. but the, the nurturing environment has been taken from them. Are they still the thing that they were born to be, or have they become something else? Yeah, there's probably that idea in there, too, that since they're, they're half God, that that's why the animals helped raise them, right? Is that, like, they, yeah. they sensed the royal uh, urgency of keeping these children alive. Interesting side note, 
uh, one of those statues that you mentioned <coughs> is is uh, just outside of where we live here in Atlanta, Rome, Georgia. Oh, Rome, Georgia. Uh, okay. You know, uh, in in allegiance with the the city it's named after, uh, constructed such a statue. So I believe in downtown Rome, there's a uh, one of those. I forget what the the wolf's name, but the, that giant wolf, mm-hmm. and there's a statue of the two little infants, kind of you know reaching up and trying to drink from the, the her. But her Rome, face. Georgia, not founded by feral children. Uh, un, un confirmed. Okay. <laughs> uh, there is another example, sort of a, again, this is one that we don't know if it's true or not, but that's sort of a myth of the feral child, and this mm-hmm. is the more medieval one, Valentine and Orson. And unlike Romulus and Remus, they're separated. So the deal was was that they were European twins, so vague we don't even know where in Europe. They're just mm-hmm. European. Uh, they were lost in a forest. Valentine was found, however, and brought back to civilization, where Orson was not, so you had that dichotomy, right? right? And Orson was supposedly raised by bears, and he became this wild man who just terrorized all the villages and abducted women and children. Hmm. And so I suppose that that was you know, a cautionary tale of the difference between man and animal, or, or what would happen to man without civilization. Yeah, I mean, we see that in so many uh, you know, beast man, monster man myths throughout history, to, just trying to figure out what is, what's the line between man and beast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that's also explored in the idea of the feral child. And, of course, there's Mowgli and Peter Pan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think we really need to go into those too much because, you know, they're mostly known from those Disney movies. I'm sure the the actual Mowgli and Peter Pan from the literature that they're, they're, <laughs> those movies are based on are significantly different, but... The idea is essentially the same, right? Yeah, if you're like me and you've seen Jungle Book, uh, you know, a thousand times in the last couple of years, you you really don't need a a lesson in what happens. But yeah, raised by wolves, it winds up living with humans again, and everything's okay. So we've got a few examples of feral children that I don't want to say that this is well documented because some of these go back quite a ways, and there's a little bit of. Uh, I think fictionalization in some of the accounts. And the, the, the first one would be, and this is sort of w- one of the most famous of feral children, is Wild Peter. And the idea, uh, w- well, at least the story goes, is that it, it was July of 1724, and outside of Hamlin, Germany, a naked 12-year-old boy stumbled out of the forest, and people saw him. He only ate grass and leaves, and whenever people tried to approach him, he would run up into the trees and hide. He totally couldn't speak. He had no language capacity whatsoever. Um, people assumed that he was a feral child who was raised in the woods by animals. It was later speculated, uh, like like much later, mm-hmm. by a German anthropologist named Johann Friedrich Blumenbach that Peter was actually a mentally disabled child who had just been abandoned by somebody within the village or somebody nearby. Mm -hmm. And he'd only been out there for maybe less than a week before he was discovered by other people. Um, Apparently, some of the accounts indicate that Peter had a defect with his tongue, which made it difficult for him to speak. So uh, the idea here being was that, like, you know, potentially Peter wasn't what we think of as a wild child, feral child at all. Mm -hmm. He might have just been... You know, a, a mentally disabled child who was uh, abandoned by his parents, but then was was refound. And his story is remarkable, but also somewhat sad. So brace yourselves. Um, he somehow went from being discovered in Germany to living with King George the First in England. 
the literature doesn't really fill the gaps in on that one. Yeah. So I'm curious what <laughs> goes on between that time. But the idea was that they treated him as a quote-unquote guest. But basically, he was kind of like a court jester. They made him dress in fancy clothes. He sat at the dinner table. They thought it was very funny because he couldn't talk and because he had bad manners. But what happened was he ended up you know, gorging on all the food presented in front of him and not having the, you know, appropriate etiquette for for court life. So he was taken away Uh, and he briefly escaped. Then he was brought back to London. They kept him around as sort of like a humorous object for court life. Uh, Caroline, the Princess of Wales, had him moved to her own residence where he was basically kept as a pet. She didn't refer to him as such as a pet, from what I understand, but the conditions he was kept in were, were as such. Uh, he slept on the floor. He was made to dress in a tailor-made suit every morning. But as you can imagine, you know, he didn't really like that, tried mm-hmm. to get out. Um, he was given a tutor. And the tutor wasn't trying to teach him, you know, how to be a civilized person, how to how to acclimate to society. They taught him tricks that uh. he could do for the ladies in court. Uh, and the only words he could say were his own name and a garbled version of King George. So 1728, by 1728, this tutor says, you know what? He is unable to receive instruction from me any longer. And lots of, uh, I don't want to say scientists. I want to say intellectuals, maybe, mm-hmm. is sort of assess him and write papers about him and observe him over this period of time. They're trying to decide. It's that period of time where they're trying to decide whether he has a soul or not. That's the thing they're the most interested in. Uh, so this gets back to that animal versus human. Yeah, so the, he's basically kept along all this time, at best as a curio, mm-hmm. if, if not just pure spectacle. Yeah, exactly. And after the sort of spectacle wore out and it was no longer amusing to the royalty, they sent him to a farm in Hertfordshire, I believe is how you pronounce it. I'm sure there's a much better British pronunciation for that. Uh, and basically, they they had a pension set aside for him of thirty five pounds a year to take care of him. So they weren't, you know, entirely heartless. Uh, but he never learned to speak. He escaped multiple times. There were incidents where you know he <clears throat> had run ins with villagers. Um, they eventually fitted him with a leather collar that had an inscription of his name and address on it. And he died at age seventy two in seventeen eighty five. That is a depressing. Story, a depressing life to try and imagine. Yeah, I'm. Part of me wonders if, given you know the nature of how he how he ended up and outside of this village in Germany, if he even understood somewhat of the mm, the the depressing nature of how he was being treated. Yeah. Um. But the, like I said, there were many researchers who were studying him at the time. The idea was basically that. At that period of time, they they considered themselves going through a scientific revolution and that this was a means of rational investigation. So mm-hmm. by all means, we should we should study Peter. I mean, I guess one could argue that he was he received better treatment than he certainly could have uh, given other circumstances. But, I think that's true. Yeah. yeah, especially when we see some of these other examples as we go through. Um, one of the intellectuals of the time, Daniel Defoe, oh, yeah. defined Peter as this was the guy who said he's an entirely separate species. So he made up a species called Homo forens, a species of wild men. And then this is important to what we're going to talk about later with language. Others thought that Peter showed what is referred to sometimes as a critical window for development in children. So there's this period of time 
roughly between, I think, about six months and four years old, mm-hmm. where there's this window of development where children are, you know, they're like sponge. Your, your son is about that age. Mm-hmm. And they're absorbing everything around them, and they're learning language. And language subsequently leads to culture, which, you know, I think is a huge way of how we define humanity. Yeah, pretty pretty much who we are. Like, the trope we end up coming back to, and we'll come back to again and again in this episode, is... Language as the um, the software, the operating yeah. system for the human brain. Yeah, and Peter didn't have that. Uh, he only had the survival instincts to basically eat and sleep. Uh, and so, you know, there was a lot of speculation about what this all meant and what it philosophically implied for humanity. And then, like I said, uh, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach came along and was like, I-, I actually think that this was a mentally disabled child. And you- you're all, you know, speculating about nothing other than that this poor child was abandoned by his parents. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Now, the next uh, one we're going to mention uh, here briefly, Victor of Avron. Yeah, this one, he was found uh, just outside of France in 1800. Yeah, he was uh, he was studied by and written of by a physician, uh, Jean-Marc Gaspard de Tard, and uh, he eventually gave up and asked his housekeeper to care for Victor. But uh, some of you may, be remember, may remember Victor from uh, Truffaut's uh, 1970 film, The Wild Child, uh, which... Uh, Gives a um, you know this fictionalized account of their mm-hmm. relationship and his work with Victor. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but from what I was reading about the 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 case of Victor was basically that you know and, and we see this in a lot of cases of these feral children that there's some intellectual curiosity at first and then they just kind of give up. Yeah, because once because ultimately you, you're left with the hard problem of what do you do with mm-hmm. somebody who. Uh, you, you can't bring them back. You can't just you can't turn them into a fully functional, um, you know, member of society at this point. Right. Yeah. And the, the care is more difficult than what they they believe that they signed up for. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, everybody wants to save the day, every, and then everyone wants to figure out what's going on. But yeah, it's it's a lengthy, lengthy process. But supposedly, uh, Victor, you know, did have some progress, at least compared to Peter, and he knew how to read simple words, and uh, he never really eventually learned how to talk, but, um, you know, he had some capacity for understanding symbols, it seemed like. Yeah, and this is where we, we see it referred to as, quote, the forbidden experiment, because... The, that's the thing about this. You could never create a languageless child to right. study. I mean, you could, but it would be the most heinous thing ever, like well beyond most uh, most things that make lists of evil experiments. <laughs> and yeah. so to find it, you have to, I mean, you, you just have to have something fall into your lap. You have to find a child that has been abandoned or neglected to a severe level. And then, of course, you're dealing with additional um, behavioral constraints. Yeah, and that's what's somewhat perverse about this, right, mm-hmm. is that it is always tragic yeah. when when a, a child like this is found. And yet, at the same time, intellectuals jump at the opportunity to be able to define the difference between humanity and, and that other state, that animalistic state, uh, because it so rarely comes along for them to study. We've also got uh, another example. These are just a few. We didn't uh, have much deep dive research on them, but there was one, uh, one child named Mimi LeBlanc, and she was the savage girl of Champagne. She appeared in France in 1731. She was dressed in animal skins. 
again, was wild and resisted capture. Eventually, she acclimated to society, and she was actually able to tell her story. And what she said was that she had been sold into slavery when she was a little girl. And she survived a shipwreck. And then she, and I'm assuming this girl was also on the shipwreck with her, an African girl of the same age survived in the wild together. And they parted ways, and that was when Memi, I think, uh, eventually was found by civilization. Then there's Oksana Mayalia. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, Ukrainian girl, supposedly raised by wild dogs and ate raw meat. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not a lot of details uh, here beyond that. Uh, and in 1996, Ivan Mushikov was found in Moscow. He was a four-year-old who wandered away from his home and ended up living in the streets with a pack of wild dogs. But eventually the authorities captured him and, you know, forced him back into society. Well, hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't know about forced, but uh, it sounds like he it was enjoying, from what I read, that he enjoyed being with the dogs. Well, yeah, I mean, little kids love the dogs. This kind of gets back in just the appeal of it. Uh-huh. Like, you see little boys want to take all their clothes off and run around and pet dogs, you know? Yeah, and I think that, uh, to a certain extent, the dogs uh, allowed him to be their pack leader, too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was probably enjoyable for a four-year-old. There are always some uh, some interesting dog stories coming out of Moscow. I want to say that's also where there were tales of dogs using the subway system, wild dogs. Oh, yeah. That would board a train and take it to the, their stop and I, get off. I, I, I heard about that recently, yeah. I can't remember if it was in Moscow or not, but, yeah, that's definitely a thing. <laughs> and sometimes, maybe this explains it. They, have, uh, they, have <laughs> they were human. taught by Ivan in 1996 <laughs> how to ride the public transportation system. <coughs> All right. So this is we're, – we're going to talk now about Genie. Uh, the, all the examples before this were what we think of as wild children, mm-hmm. children who were raised in the wild, either on their own or with animals. Right. Right. Genie is our first uh, concrete example in the 20th century of one of these children who was abused and, uh, and basically abandoned or at least isolated uh, and subsequently was thought of as a feral child. Yeah, and it's it's a sad story, and we're not going to be able to even cover all the angles on it because it, it involves uh, you know the media, it involves uh, well-meaning scientists, well-meaning caregivers, and just the, the the lifetime care of an individual. There's an excellent documentary that came out years ago uh, from Nova, right. uh, Secret of the Wild Child, and uh, I uh, I embedded a YouTube of it in a in a, cli- in a in a post that I'll link to on the landing page for this episode. So that's a great and place to up, go. That post is up on stufftoblowyourmind.com, right? Yes, it is. Okay. So yeah. uh, it's a wonderful documentary that gets into you know all the. Uh, if all you the really want, you know, a full deep dive into the history of Genie, we're gonna we're gonna provide as much information as we can here. But we, right. you know, we need to cover the whole instance of feral children. Yeah. So this uh, takes place in Arcadia, California. Uh, Genie, and that's not her her real name. That's her case name. Um, because, uh, you know, it's like the uh, the mythical genie, uh, an emergent mm-hmm. creature without a human childhood. Uh, she was born in 1957, um, and she still resides in California as a ward of the state. But um, she suffered from a, a very dramatic childhood, if you can even call it a childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, locked in a room, tied for, to a potty chair for most of her life. Yeah, one instance I read was that she was chained to mm-hmm. it and that she slept there. Like yeah. She she sat and slept on this potty chair. Yeah, like she's basically kept in an upstairs room for the first uh, 13 years of her life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it a lot of it had to do, I mean, not most of it had to do with her father being a rather disturbed individual. Yeah. Um, 
who who thought that she was retarded and that she, and that she would die before she reached the age of 12. Yeah, I think his idea was like he would sort of hide her from society until she passed away. Yeah. And then I suppose he would uh you know take her body away in the middle of the night and bury her somewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure. He it was uh, very deranged. Yeah, he seemed to be from by accounts that we were looking at um dominating abusive uh, towards not only her, but also the mother, who uh, I believe right. was partially blind and suffered from uh, some ailments as well. Yeah, and her claim was that she uh, didn't really have a whole lot of say in it, that she, that she could, there wasn't much that she could do and that she was as much of a victim as Jeannie was. Uh, and then my other understanding here is that when when Jeannie was found, uh, they they did, you know, obviously they did some tests right when they found her and they... She had abnormal brain waves, which suggested that she had brain damage from birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody agreed on this, though, because later on in life, Jeannie showed improvement when she was taken to, you know, some, she had a long story, but when she was taken care of by caring families, uh, she showed improvement. And in most cases of birth brain damage like that, that's not the case. So there's mm-hmm. some dispute over this. Yeah, but you know, there's so many additional factors involved in this one because, again, she was she's deprived of language, but deprived of love, deprived of uh, environmental stimuli. She was she was punished for making noise. Apparently, you know, beaten for making noise. So mm. throughout her life, um, it was it was a, a real effort to try and get sounds out of her. And I believe at one case later later on, she was in a, a foster home environment and she was punished for vomiting. Yeah, I read and that as well. So she backtracked uh, after that. She basically was yeah taught through punishment that mm-hmm. opening her mouth was wrong. And so she did everything that she could to either not speak or open her mouth at all. Or So not only was she mute because she never learned language properly, but because she was basically taught not to talk. Yeah. Uh, she had a very, they describe it as a bunny walk, though, um, when they found her. Apparently, you know, she was strapped to this, uh, this, this potty chair. Apparently, the way that she walked was sort of like a rabbit, like, uh, with both feet, she would jump forward. Yeah, the, the footage of her in the, the documentary, she, she moves very mysteriously, you know? Okay. And, and it, you know, it all kind of plays into, into to the appeal of her case, is that she's, she looks like, a normal child, you know, she mm. looks, there's, there's something kind of haunting about her though, because there's an otherness to her as well. And her, yeah, it's her heartbreaking. Yeah, exactly. It's that, um, mm, right. Exactly. It's, it seems alien instead of human. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about it that, that turns you off. But then at the same time, it's such a heartbreaking story that you just can't help but feel horrible for her. Yeah. Well, what eventually happened was the father shot himself basically right after they, they, they took her away. Yeah, the media f- really got involved in this pretty f- quickly. And in the end, there's actually a, a connection to Victor uh, in this because uh, that Truffaut movie we mentioned debuted exactly one week after Jeannie was discovered. So in no time at all, just, you know, full-fledged, you know, media circus. And this guy's atrocities have been uh, revealed to the world. Yeah, I wasn't alive then, but I suspect that at this period of time in 1970 that feral children were a hot topic in the media at the time, probably in newspapers and yeah. television reports and such. Uh, so Jeannie, you know, like, like we said, she went on to have uh, a lot. She was researched a lot, but that she also uh, was seen as a modern exploration of trying to figure out 
how language acquisition worked, what was going on with this abnormal child psychology that she had. And, uh, you know, uh, some of the professionals that dealt with her, I think, sort of, again, like we talked about with uh, Victor, they saw it as sort of their mission to rescue her, but then mm-hmm. they realized how difficult it was and either gave up on her or there were some accusations, I don't know if you saw this, that, that there were um, instances where some of them were trying to get media attention by taking care of her. Yeah, there's so many so many factors sort of tugging apart the situation with this girl up. Uh, you know, a very real girl at the the center of it all. Um, and it's worth noting, too, that she, at one point she did wind up with her mother again. Like her, her right. mother recovered enough to where and was cleared of abuse charges and apparently tried for a, a limited amount of time. It, it didn't work, it didn't though, work, was my yeah. understanding. And then she that was when she entered multiple foster homes right yeah. after that, I believe. And some of those foster homes were abusive. And mm-hmm. that was where she was abused for vomiting one time. Yeah. Uh, so... She was seen as a perfect opportunity to test out this language, this idea about language development that is called critical period hypothesis. And I believe that this was first coined by, is his name Eric Lennenberg or Lenneberg? Um, yeah, I believe it was uh, proposed by a pair of uh, neurologists, uh, Wilder Pinfield and co-author Lamar Roberts in 59, but then it was popularized in the 70s by uh, Eric Lindbergh. That's oh, what, okay. That's what I, I read. So the idea is that uh, of the ch- critical period hypothesis is similar to that window that I was right. talking about earlier, which is that in the first few years of life, it is a crucial period for human beings to learn language and to be presented with the you know appropriate stimuli to uh, join civilization. Yeah, and uh, Lindbergh um, helped uh, popularize this. He argued that, yeah, that first language acquisition relies on neuroplasticity. And uh, if you make it to puberty without it, then you'll never have full mastery of a language. And, uh, and you know, therefore, you're going to have a limited ability to even uh, to not only communicate, but also to process the world around you. And like you're saying, this is not something that we can experiment with, right? right. We can't take a child and say, you know what, we're purposely not going to teach this child. We're going to isolate this child and not teach them language for four years just to see what happens. Yeah, the best generally you can do is is see how normal children uh, acquire language and study delays in, in other children. But mm-hmm. uh, for a full-blown case like this, you just have to wait for something horrible to happen. So let's talk about how Noam Chomsky comes into this. Uh, not in terms of, I don't believe Chomsky had any direct interaction with Jeannie's case, but that Chomsky, uh, was, you know, many of you probably know Chomsky as a political dissident and theorist. Yeah, I feel like that's what he's, he's more known as these days. It, it is. might come as a surprise to pe- some people to, to realize that he was a linguist. Yeah. A linguist. In fact, he, you're right. Uh, that was what he was most known for, uh, when I was in school. That, that was how I was introduced to him as was that he was one of the most regarded linguists. Uh, and he was, uh, he taught at MIT. If he doesn't, I don't think he's still teaching there, but he was teaching there, uh, when I lived in New England 10 years ago. Yeah. And he, uh, he had this argument that we acquire language not just because we're taught it, but because we're born with the principles of language, that it's in our genes. So that, uh, so this would be the nature side of the nature nurture coin when it comes to linguistics. Yeah. Chomsky called this a universal grammar. Uh, and the idea is that as children, we're hardwired to have, an, and this is an important term, an instinct for language. Uh, and this concept 
dominated linguistics for 40 years. But as we're going to, you know, discover as we go along, it was wrong. Um, So it's important to consider this as we're thinking about these feral children and how they either did or did not learn language and how that affected them during the, you know, the critical window that Lennonberg talks about. But there, let, let's acknowledge up front like that Chomsky's, uh, theory of universal grammar has not panned out. Yeah, because uh, we've yet to find a universal framework across all like 7,000 odd different languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a child from one nation can be raised in another with no difficulty. Um, and, and and yet we see no, you know, real clear synchronicity in language. But it's, uh, it's an appealing theory because it helps explain the wonders of rapid language acquisition that we see in children where they're, they, you know, I've, I've seen it in my, my own son's life where he goes from this this uh, you know largely mute little creature, yeah. and then suddenly he's saying words, and then he's he's building things with those words. He's building concepts. He's yeah. getting ideas and expressing them. Um, so, like this, one of the key truths here is that our brains really are language ready in a limited sense. I mean, we have the right sort of working memory to process sentence level syntax. Uh, we have an unusually large prefrontal cortex that gives us the associative learning capacity to use symbols. And our bodies are made for language. Uh, our larynx is set low, at least, you know, compared to other uh, primates, allowing us to expel and control the passage of air. The position of the tiny uh, hyoid bone in the jaw gives us fine muscular control over our mouths and tongues to form all those words and to make, uh, you know, upwards of 144 uh, distinct speech sounds. So even if we're not born with the linguistic software, uh, we do come factory ready with much of the linguistic hardware. Yeah, so it, exactly. That hardware is the important part in distinguishing that it is not an instinct, right? right? We're, we're physically built for it. By the time children are three to four years old, they've acquired the elements of language from around them. And that's regardless, like, let's keep this in mind of all the different languages that exist in human culture. That's regardless of what that language is, its grammar system, its sound system. Children can acquire that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by six months old, and those of you with children out there or experience with, with infants will know this. They're already category, categorizing sounds of their language, right? They're picking up on the sounds that are around them and trying to figure out what they mean and, and, and putting them into boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, by their first year, children have honed in on what we call phonology. And this is just the sounds and patterns of, of you know, a particular language that are used basically as symbols around them. And, you know, the vocabulary of young children is essentially a reflection of what their everyday lives are, right? So I would imagine that Bastion, uh, your son, is probably not having a whole lot of moments where he's thinking deeply about uh, different times in history or, or <laughs> space that's far away from him, right? Or no, some kind no. of abstraction. He's probably thinking about the things that are immediately in front of him. Yeah, like if he's thinking about the past, he's saying, remember that time that we saw a dead spider? Remember right. that? Right. You know, that sort of thing. But Not so much like, I wonder, you know, how come the Mongols weren't able to invade Japan? Exactly. Yeah. We don't develop that capacity until much later. But uh, the vocabulary is more immediate for us. And language in humans as a species, you know, it's essentially similar in all of us. Um, we need, so we should distinguish this as we're talking along here at, at using feral children as an example for this. True language requires that the speaker is able to make new utterances and combine or expand upon the forms that they already know, right? And so we think of this 
as syntax when, yeah. we're, when we're sort of breaking down language. This, these are the rules for how to combine words into acceptable phrases or sentences, how you transform existing words. And this is something we sort of learn instinctively along the way, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's why a parrot reciting some words that it, that it has learned exactly. is not talking. It's merely yeah. saying these words. Yeah, in fact, you cannot teach true language to another species. Uh, we have examples of many animals, primates especially, that are capable of learning cues or symbolic communication. Lots of primates use American Sign Language, mm. but that's not language, technically. That's symbolic communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a difference. Yeah, and language certainly goes well beyond just simply communicating. Exactly, yeah. And so, you know... Part of this is this is why it got to the heart of uh, the the sort of human versus animal difference is that to learn language you have to be in a society. It requires that you have uh, emotional motivation and social interaction. Like for instance, we know that you cannot just put an infant in front of a television and they'll learn language. They they will hear the 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 morphemes and the phonology that's mm-hmm. going on through the television, but because they're not getting any actual social interaction, there's no give and take there, they won't learn the language. And so that's why these feral children in the, in, in instances, they, they have no capacity for language and, and oftentimes they've gone past that window so they can no longer learn it either. One last thing I want to say about language, and this is a, a, another sort of you know, uh, tie in to the idea of that some of these feral children were mentally disabled, but they just didn't have sort of the categorization for that at the time, mm-hmm. is that um, there are several areas of the brain. We used to just think it was one part of the brain, Broca's area, that was responsible for language. But we know now several special areas. There's Wernicke's area. There's another part that's called the arc. I'm going to mess this up. Everybody who, who's listened to me on Stuff to Blow Your Mind now is probably used to me butchering Latin. But the arcuate facilius. Uh, so those are in different parts of our brain. And so there doesn't appear to be just like one dedicated spot. Mm-hmm. So, of course, then, if there's brain damage in, 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 at birth, then there's potentially going to be a difficulty for both learning language and for um, developing, you know, symbol use in culture later on. Now, to come back to, to Jeannie's case, um, she did acquire some language in her life. She mm-hmm. used it to make sense of past and present and, and express herself. Uh, but she never like fully communicated. And certainly this was, uh, all of this was, was made more problematic by her, you know, her aggression at various yeah. times in her life and just the overall traumatic nature of her and existence. So what that sounds like to me is, is symbolic communication, but not necessarily language, right? She, she didn't possess the ability to transform words and into syntactical structures. Uh, but she was able to communicate still the same way like a you know a dolphin can or a chimpanzee can yeah and uh you know her case to this day writers continue to analyze it pick it apart uh she's no longer you know actively studied as i understand it she just resides in a in a home uh, somewhere in california and leads a quiet life there and it's explored in that documentary. Of course, it's it, her her case is uh, it's kind of controversial uh, due to you know so many people trying to yeah. in, inject themselves, and, and also a lot of them I think were trying to do the right thing, but uh, those agendas kind of become crossed here and there, where one person really wants to 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 get to the root of her problem, to study what's happening, and another just wants to see her cared for in a in an environment that is not. Uh, 
not going to jar her or confuse her. And of course, during this period of time, this was when uh, I think that there was a lot of debates in American politics about how much tax money should be going towards supporting mental mm-hmm. health care. And so in 1974, the National Institute of Mental Health revoked her treatments funding. And this was when she went back to her mother. Her mother was acquitted of all the charges. Again, like it didn't work out with her mother. She went into foster system. Bad things happened. As far as we know now, right? She, a, a private investigator found her at some kind of facility in California for, I, I, from my understanding, is for mentally underdeveloped adults. So she's being cared for. Right. Okay. So uh, actually, there's another example of very similar to Jeannie uh, from as close enough as 2005. And this is a young girl named Danielle Crockett. Um, some refer to her as the girl in the window because of um, that was how she was discovered. People oh. saw her in the window of this home. She was in Florida. And when she was a six-year-old, she was found isolated in a small room within her mother's home. And the officer that found her said that this was the worst case of child neglect he'd seen in 27 years on the force. And I won't go into the details here, but it was... Uh, absolutely filthy. It, it was just uh, horrifying, the description of this place that she was living in. And, and I think like Jeannie, I don't know that she was chained down, but she was kept in a room by mm-hmm. herself. When they found her, she was unclothed and emaciated. She was covered in bites and sores. She couldn't communicate at all. She couldn't even eat solid food. The, and the, the, the most telling thing was that she didn't recognize any kind of uh, communication from other human beings or even affection. And then what's important about this is severely autistic children still respond to affection, but she wasn't responding at all. Uh, and so as a result of this, her imprisonment was defined as being something called environmental autism. So it was the, hmm. like the circumstances of how she was raised up until that point uh, basically generated the same symptoms that she would have if she was autistic. You know, this brings to mind uh, research we looked at in the past about... Um about just the effects of uh, of isolation on adults, right? You know, the individuals who've already made it through their their childhood mm-hmm. uh, and acquired language, but uh, but just to put a, a regular, otherwise healthy adult in in an environment of very limited stimuli uh, has a has can have a disastrous effect on the psyche. Yeah, absolutely. I know just for myself, like. Uh, if I stay in the house for too long, I, I have a tendency to hole up while I'm doing work. Mm-hmm. And, I, but I can easily go a couple of days on end without <laughs> leaving the house. And it, it, you don't realize it, but it starts to affect you. Yeah. I mean, our brains, uh, evolved to allow us to live in a world of, uh, you know, of various stimuli, of fixed mm-hmm. and moving objects. And so when you deny it those things, it, it begins to gnaw on itself. You see things that aren't there. You hear things that are not there. And, uh, you know, and that's, again, that's an, ad- an adult. Now imagine that scenario yeah. uh, for a child that is in the process of absorbing all the data about the world they live in. And she has no other example. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the good news about Danielle Crockett is that she was adopted by a very loving family from what it sounds like and made significant developmental progress uh, in the years since. So it's been 10 years since, oh, since she was found. So she's probably 16 now. Uh, and she lives in Tennessee with her adopted parents and they're caring for her and, and, and they're dedicated to being with her for the rest of her life. Well, good. Good. Well, hopefully that that will continue to look up. I think yes. it will. Yeah, it was the reading in particular. There's a there's a really great piece uh, about, about Danielle um, that hopefully we can link to uh, in the in the show notes. But um, there's 
they they at length interview the family that adopted her, oh, and it's um it's 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 heartwarming. All right, so that's just the first part of our exploration into feral children and the acquisition of language and what language does as this software for the hardware of the brain. And we're going to pick it up in a second episode. Yeah, we're going to talk more about the science of feral children focusing in on language and child development. Now that you've had these examples, you know, both mythical and uh, real life that, that we can work from, now we can really you know dive deep into the science of it. In the meantime, uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you will find uh, all the podcast episodes, uh, the, blo- the blog post, uh, videos, links out to our social media accounts like Tumblr and Facebook and Twitter. We'll blow the mind on all of those. And, uh, and again, the landing page for this episode will include uh, links to some of the studies we've talked about as well as related content on the site. Yeah, and you know, please listen to the second episode, but you know, let us know uh, anything that you've learned about feral children over the years. Maybe you perhaps have done some work in child development yourself we'd love to hear more about it you can reach us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 